friends, I, I want to uh, just take you back um, before I actually give the passage uh, to, to a few weeks ago uh, when Stephen very, um, very importantly and very challengingly um, gave us an address on the 16th of August on why people don't pray. And um, Stephen, I hope I'm, I'm saying this right. You gave us four reasons, or you suggested four reasons. One was carelessness. People don't care enough. Uh, we are so busy. Uh, and he, he gave us a number of examples. He said, we need to learn to fast. And to fast from the phone and from texting and from chat. And I, I, I can remember that day. And, and it just seemed to me, and please don't take this in the wrong way, anybody, but the chat that day seemed to fill up with comments as Stephen, and a lot of them weren't particularly relevant to what Stephen was talking about. <laughs> I was sorely tempted to put a note in the chat, and I thought, no, I'm not going to, you know, he said fast from chatting, so I wouldn't do it, <laughs> so I didn't. Um, but friends, I, I, I do wonder sometimes when the chat fills up whether people are actually listening to what the speaker's saying. <laughs> Now, you may not want to listen to me and you may want to chat and you may think that I'm not worth listening to. Well, that's fine. But it just seems to me that perhaps we need to be a little bit more, you know, Stephen said about being careless. And I, I, I'm not trying to be critical, but I, I just wonder whether we always take in what's said. Please don't wonder. And then the second thing was he said, we don't believe. Do we really believe in the power of prayer? And I know we're here to pray, and I trust we do believe in the power of prayer. And I'm not trying, again, being critical, but it was so important and his words were so helpful. And then he talked about the, the fact that some are perverse, which means crooked and not straight. And then fourthly, he said the problem of prayer, of pride. And he said we're too proud to admit our need. And a few days earlier, our brother Mark Acevedo had given us a stirring challenge about praying for revival. And again, uh, Mark spoke on this, about this on the 23rd, 3rd of August. And so what I want to do today is really to, 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 to make the statement or to, to consider the statement, we need to seek God. We need to seek God. And uh, please, please don't take that the wrong way, my dear friends. Um, we need prayer comments, and if you've got things to put in the chat for prayer, that's wonderful. Um, but our real aim, surely, in this time of prayer is to seek God. And I want you to turn you just for a moment or two to Matthew chapter 11 and verses 20 to 26. Matthew 11 and verses 20 to 26. I, I, I couldn't find it on the, on the prayer uh, call things, but I, I have a feeling that somebody did turn to this passage a few weeks ago, um, but I couldn't find it, and I, I, I hadn't got any. I hadn't got my notes from from those days, but I, I just want to read these words from verses twenty to twenty six. Here's our Lord Jesus, and he says, "Then he began to rebuke the cities, in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida!" For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to he hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. 
But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment for, than for you. And then he gives us these lovely words here in verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. I thought those were lovely words of, of our Lord as he speaks of those who come like babes, not as not childishly, but in childlike manner. And the, one of the big problems we face, isn't it, is that men, men and women, they don't want to be disturbed from, from their sins. And I think that's the context of what our Lord is saying here. The pleasures of sin sometimes, even sadly to some Christian people, are too strong. And here is our Lord, and he's actually quite angry. Verse 20, the Lord, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done. And I think that's very, very significant. He is angry with Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. What were their sins? Well, they weren't great and terrible crimes. They were the sin of hearing the word of God and seeing his mighty works and remaining just as they were. They heard the preaching of the Son of God and it made no effect upon them. How tragic. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in their midst and doing miracles. And yet, they remained unchanged and unmoved. And I have to say, my friends, that if we hear the word of God and are not changed by it, we make the God, Son of God angry. And we are worse sinners than the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here are the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who sinned against the light they had. But the men of Capernaum had so much more light. Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, were destroyed in Old Testament days. Did you know that if you go to Capernaum today, or at least the Capernaum where our Lord worked, Today, it is a ruin. There's actually a video uh, of a flight over the top of Capernaum on, the, on, on YouTube, and it shows modern day, where, or the, the modern day place where Capernaum was, and it is a ruin. It's a city that is gone, or a town that is gone. And I think this is a very solemn warning, isn't it? I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum because you've heard the truth and, you're now, and you've rejected it. And today we have more light than Sodom and we have more light than Capernaum. And the worst sinners of all are those who remain unmoved under gospel preaching. Surely we need to seek God. Our desperate need is for him. We who have heard the word of God and seen how he changes lives and saves men and women, surely this should drive us to pray with earnestness and zeal for the glory of God to be revealed in these godless and blasphemous days. So our Lord's words in verses 25 and 26, to come as babes, to come as little children to our loving heavenly father, because he waits to bless us with his abundance, great, grace. 
Now, a very dear friend of mine who died a few a few years ago uh, was a man called Dr. Peter Rowell. Some of you may never have heard of him, but he was quite well known in certain circles over here in this country. And he wrote an article many years ago, and and uh, one of our um, one of our publications in this country has recently reprinted it. Let me just share a word or two from it. And he says this, it was a wise and gracious man who said, I want a feeling religion, not a religion of feelings. And Joseph Hart sang the truth when he wrote, true religions more than notions, something must be known and felt. Some of you may know that hymn. That's uh, so one of my, one of a favorite of mine. True Christianity, he says, has at its foundation the great unalterable doctrines of biblical revelation the undeniable facts of history, and preeminently the real living Lord Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection is infallibly recorded under the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is the varied panorama of objective truth to which the humble spirit of a believer always looks with the utmost confidence, as he says, I believe this is absolutely true and reliable. And yet, the same believer, and I trust we, can say more than that. We can speak of the subjective side of religion and of our experience of the grace of God, and it's a vital part of true Christianity. Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, and he is that, whether people believe it or not. But only the believer knows him as his own Savior. Only the believer can say, I know whom I have believed. I am that he is the son of God. I trust him for my salvation. Now, it's evident, of course, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. But it's equally evident that not everybody repents, do they? We know that. The objective truth is plainly written. God commands all men everywhere to repent. The subjective experience is Subjective experience is plainly essential because Jesus said, if you, unless you repent, you too will perish. But however, when we think about Christian experience, there is a need for caution, says Peter Rowell. Believers are all the same in regard to their standing in Christ. They're all saved by grace and taught by the same Holy Spirit, but they're all different in their emotional and natural constitution. Some are deeply sensitive and easily moved to emotional heights and depths. Others are more placid, even and quiet in their reactions to life's experience, experiences. Some have a deeply introspective nature, prone to severe self-examination and self-condemnation. Others have a happy, extrovert and active nature, which enjoys company, but shuns long and lonely thought. From this wonderful variety of human nature, God has chosen his own to make up his church in which these natural characteristics are retained, but sanctified to his glory and balanced and the balanced life of the church. And so there will be amongst us and even amongst us here on this prayer call, a great variety of experiences of natural characteristics and how experience is known and felt but we must have the reality of genuinely knowing the feeling, as it were, the experience. One believer may be quite unable to express this clearly and yet be a true believer. 
Another believer may be able to describe vividly and minute detail the moving of God's Holy Spirit. One may speak quietly with little emotion, yet others will hardly begin to speak before being overwhelmed with tears. I think that's very helpful from Peter Rowell, and it helps us to think about these things. But in all of this, we need to strive to be holy men and women. And however that is experienced and however that's demonstrated, that's surely what we aim for. Now, that doesn't stop us from falling into sin, does it? At the end of 2 Samuel 11, David thinks he's got away with his sin with Uriah's wife. But the last sentence of the chapter states, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And of course, we know what happened in chapter 12. Now, David's sin still has an effect on men today, and I've been thinking about this more recently. I don't know about you, and I'm sure, bless you, I'm sure none of you on this call would think like this, but the tragedy is that today I meet people who argue that if David could get away with it, as it were, and be forgiven, then why can't they do likewise? And they say something like this, if David can repent and be forgiven, then surely I can sin in the same way and God will forgive me. Well, my friends, that's no way, but that's no mark of holiness, is it? And the danger is we then fall into the same judgments of Capernaum. And as a result, I find maybe this isn't true for you. Maybe you don't experience this, but I find sometimes there's often more opposition to purity and holiness than to sin. And even among Christians, there seems to be opposition sometimes to practical holiness. And I don't know about you, but I find sometimes people say, oh, the trouble here with you is that you're just in a holy huddle. Or they turn around and they say, oh, you're being puritanical. Or you're a Sabbatarian. Or you're bigoted. Or that you see things far too black and white. And I find that that's said of people who make a clear stand for the truth and seek to uphold the truth. And that is tragic. Because there is a sense in which the Bible is black and white. And when somebody calls me bigoted, and I've been called bigoted over the years, I sometimes turn to them and I say, I thank you. Because the word bigot comes from the word by God. And I'm glad you've recognized that I'm a man of God. And that usually shocks them. Because that's what Spurgeon said that. He said, I'm always pleased when someone calls me a bigot, he says in one of his sermons. I can't remember which one, but I read it many years ago. He says, because it comes from a, a saying by God. And he says, I am going to stand by God in all that I do. You see, my friends, there's a price to be paid, isn't there, when we stand up against moral corruption and whenever moral standards are despised. God was displeased with David, and yet David didn't know it at the end of chapter 11. Is God displeased with us as he was with Capernaum? Either way, the only place of safety is to trust him, to determine that by his grace, we will be holy. We will be pure 
and righteous by his power and through his enabling because he alone can keep us but woe betide anyone who forgets to keep looking to him so my friends are we in danger of being like Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum hearing the word of God but remaining unchanged unmoved unaffected by its power are we in danger of arguing that because great men of the Bible, of God in the Bible committed sin, we can do the same? Remember that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need to seek to pray to God with all our power and all our might, to pray without ceasing, to pray and to pray until we really pray and know that God has heard us. So that we are men and women of God who are so taken up with his glory that nothing will stop us from glorifying his name and pleading with him to come and do us good. He has promised that them that honour me, I will honour. So, my friends, what are we waiting for? Let us continue to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near.